Hello and welcome to this edition of TMLT's podcast, Trends MD, Answers for Healthcare's Digital Trends. I'm your host, Tony Pasolacqua, and today I have special guests Lauren Winchester and Joel Furman from Corvus. I also have Juan from my IT department co-hosting. Our topic today is cybersecurity. TMLT is working with Corvus Insurance, an insurance technology firm, to provide our policyholders with a more robust cyber risk management. Every TMLT policyholder will have a security scan of their website conducted by Corvus to detect any cyber vulnerabilities. Corvus will then provide each policyholder with their individual report identifying any risks found and how to mitigate them. Reports will be provided on our My Portal member website for download. If you are a policyholder and want more information about how we are working with Corvus, please contact customer service at 1-800-580-8658. Hi, thanks for having us. Lauren uh, and Joel, would you guys go ahead and uh, introduce yourselves to our listeners? Sure. Hi, everyone. I'm Lauren Winchester. I head up our risk and response services at Corvus Insurance. So I help policyholders on the front end with risk mitigation solutions and vulnerability alerting um, and just kind of all things cybersecurity. And then I'm available as a resource should there be a potential data breach to help them with incident response. And my background, I'm a privacy attorney by background, um, but have spent the last seven years in insurance. And I'm Joel Furman. I, uh, I'm a cyber liability underwriter. I do both our open market products as well as our um, embedded, uh, what we call reinsurance products, similar to what we did for uh, TMLT. My background, I've, uh, I've been underwriting cyber liability for about 11 years now. Prior to that, I was in a, uh, a software company. I was doing technical project management. And uh, as part of that, we were securing servers and, and wireless networks. So that's carried over to what I do now. Wonderful. Thank you for those introductions. As Juan and I were looking through all of this information, one of the big things that we were looking into was detection of cyber threats. Juan, you kind of had a really neat statistic that you found. I was reading a document from Frame Micro, and you know, last year was a crazy year with the pandemic. And I think all those trips that you know hackers were able to do, uh, I believe it was like 20% that increased just last year. And I think it was really, really crazy when I was reading that document, Anthony. I think you and I, we have that discussion and I was just impressed. So um, one of the things that we wanted to jump into here with the, uh, the the podcast is, in my head, I break down risk management into two kind of distinct sections, the, the proactive cyber risk management and then a reactive risk management. And so one of the, the biggest things that I think of on the proactive side is how important is it to educate users on cyber risk management? I, I could take that one. So th this is really your frontline defense, right? There's so, so many of these exploits start with phishing, maybe any general user, or it could be you know, like a spear phishing campaign to try and get credentials from a privileged user. So user training is definitely not the end all be all. It can't be something that you rely on as your main cybersecurity defense. But it is your frontline defense and you know having folks who are educated on what to look for in those kind of those phishing campaigns or sometimes it's even a telephone call we're even seeing now in, in some of the latest ransomware attacks where um, the bad actors are, are directly contacting employees and offering incentives for them to help so Going back to, you know, when I started doing this 11, 11 years ago, we talked about, you know, the importance of training and it's still every bit as important today. However, you know, that being said, you do have to assume 
that, you know, regardless of how much training you do, you will have some people that get duped and, you know, click on a link and uh, it's very important to have defense in depth. So, you know, what happens after that? But, you know, definitely we recommend, you know, do the best training and awareness you can do for your users, but also assume that somebody is going to miss that training or, you know, yeah. make a mistake. Yeah. And I, and I also say like, there's sometimes can be a level of overconfidence if you're finally getting that great budget for, you know, information security, and you're finally getting some really cool tools in place that these tools are going to help you identify and prevent attacks. And Yes, to some extent that's true, but what we see day in, day out is even with some of the most sophisticated tools in place, uh, a phishing attack was really what started the attack. Um, And so to Joel's point, there's no replacement for a really robust education program with your employees. I've been working in IT for a couple of years, and I feel like the biggest issue that I have is that users, like Joel said, people, they just click on links, and I think to me, it's really important to get them a good education and make them aware. So I think it's a great, great answer from, from you guys. You know, in the time that I've been underwriting cyber, you know, I've heard, you know, the best, what we call click rate. So, you know, the, these uh, like phishing campaigns, you know, what percentage of the employees actually would click on a link or open an attachment. Um, the best I've heard in my career is 2%. And that was probably, those probably weren't the most sophisticated you know, testing campaigns. So, you know, even in the best case scenario, if you can get to enough people, if you can get to 50 people, chances are one is going to click on, you know, on this malicious attachment or malicious link. So again, we'd like to get 50 out of 50, 49 out of 50 is, is great. But in the absence of these campaigns, oftentimes you'll see even as, as high as 20%, most of the time in double digits without training. Well, and I know from um, TMLT's perspective, we do something called security risk assessments. Um, So just for any of our listeners who are out there that are a a physician practice, um, security risk assessments are used for compliance-based issues. And one of the components that we do dig into are um, security, administrative, technical features that are that are built into the security risk assessment itself, as well as privacy. So if, um, if, if you're looking at having really good training, please feel free to contact TMLT's Cyber Consulting Service Department, and we can set you up with a security risk assessment. How do hackers get access to computers? Do they yeah. have like, physical access? Do they have like a remote access or how that works? So many different ways, Juan. Um, <laughs> I'd say first and foremost is phishing as an attack vector, which we've already uh, mentioned before. Um, but really, that's uh, that's a main way that we see hackers start to um, infiltrate an organization is to Um, send phishing emails. They might do a widespread campaign to see how many users they can get. They may not even be targeting that organization initially. They're just doing a wide, uh, casting a wide net. Or perhaps they are targeting the organization and they're being a little bit more discreet in who they're reaching out to. But either way, they're sending some sort of phishing email. The one goal might be just to get credentials for that user. And so they may send a phishing email that if they see that company is running Microsoft 365 or corporate Gmail, they might send a phishing email that looks to be like Microsoft 365. Um, User clicks on the link, takes them to a web page that again looks like 365's login page. They put in their credentials. 
and either nothing happens or maybe it takes them to the real page and they put their credentials in again. Either way, very challenging for that user to identify what's just happened typically. Um, in my experience, they almost never realized that something went amiss and that they were at a fraudulent website. On the back end, that threat actors now gain their username and password and might be logging right back into the email. And in a little bit, we can talk about ways to, to make sure they can't just turn around and log back in. But this has been a tried and true way for threat actors to get credentials in the past couple of years and super easy to accomplish. They might also be using that phishing campaign to try and get users to click on or download malicious software, malware, in order to you know, be able to gain access to the system that way. Now, when you do a malicious email like that with an attachment, there's going to be a higher chance that spam filters and email security programs may identify and flag that email and not allow it to go through, which is one of the reasons that they favor those um, credential emails so much more. But either way, we've seen we've seen that as an initial attack vector. Some of the other things that we've seen preferred by threat actors have been open ports to a system, specifically open remote desktop protocol ports um, and with a remote desktop service running behind that. For those less technical, what that means is basically it's a legitimate Windows program that allows someone on computer A to remotely log into computer B and do work. So this is especially used in smaller companies who might have outside IT. Um, and not it's not in and of itself bad, but what's bad is when it's open facing to the internet and scannable by threat actors and not properly protected. So that's a, another favorite for threat actors. And then I'd say the third is gonna be your more traditional software vulnerabilities, particularly unpatched systems unpatched VPNs in particular. Um, so, you know, name of the game there is for companies that are not doing robust patch management and not doing that quickly. They can be at risk, particularly for software running at their perimeter. You know, you get, get a lot of press coverage of like a zero day vulnerability attacks and uh, that sort of thing. And that's really a very small percentage of the, the incidents that we actually see. Those, you know, very sophisticated nation state kind of things or where, you know, are the, are the most capable, you know, criminal operations out there are aware of a vulnerability that nobody else is. That's really a very kind of fringe case. What, what we see most often is a known vulnerability that hasn't been patched and it's exploited by the vast majority of folks who are aware of that vulnerability and how to take advantage of it. So those are great answers. Uh, so I, one of the questions that I always have is as a user, what you sometimes hear is, is, well, we have phenomenal security and my firewalls, everything's all set up. And so therefore I don't really have to worry about phishing because we have such robust security systems that it'll, it'll catch it. Right. I mean, that's sometimes <laughs> the argument we do get. So with a phishing campaign, when you do click on that link, what, what exactly happens? Yeah, you may have a very robust email security program, and perhaps it is catching the super obvious phishing campaigns or the ones that ha clearly have a malicious payload attached to them. But what we do see is when they just include a link out, that's not always getting caught by the spam filters. And that link itself isn't uh, malicious. It doesn't download anything to the computer. It just takes them to a website where they enter credentials and the threat actor grabs it. So 
Those tend to evade even the best email security filters that you might have, though not all of them. And, and don't get me wrong, th these tools are very needed and they cut out a ton of spam. But you have to assume even the best are going to miss things. And even the best will miss some of those malicious payloads as well that are in attachments. Or we've seen you know, a link out to a nefarious website where the user then downloads from the website. So it didn't get caught up in the email security tool. And instead, it would be more a matter of what sort of controls do you have in place on the user's computer that would prevent them downloading something from the internet? That actually raised two additional questions. We were talking a little bit about the RDP connections. Is there any specific ports if, if we're running a DLP report that uh, practice should be um, particularly concerned about, like let's say port 443? Yeah, great question. So, and, and good to dive into this a little bit because it is just super easy to secure RDP and it's just not done. Um, so what we do when we're scanning, when, and, and Corvus has its own in-house scan that we use, um, external facing only, non-invasive, but we're looking for things that threat actors can look for as well. We're looking for weaknesses. And one of the things we're looking for is, can we identify that you have open port 3389. And 3389 is a port that is typically used for RDP or running remote desktop service behind it. That's not to say you can't change the port. So other, you know, organizations that are trying to obfuscate their RDP use and not make it so obvious for threat actors, they'll change the listening port for RDP. And that's one step you can and should take. But by and large, if we see that you've got an open 3389, we, for the most part, know you're running RDP behind that or RDS behind that. If you're not securing that with MFA, if you're not putting that behind a VPN so we can't see it, then we know it's definitely vulnerable to some password cracking. And, you know, sometimes we get the question, well, obviously we don't have it just open. We've got a username and password on it, right? But chances are a threat actor seeing that port um, with just just protected by username and password, they're going to be able to crack that. They can brute force that port pretty easily and get in that way. So really what we're trying to encourage policyholders to do where we see 3389 open is we give them a couple of steps on how to better secure it, either put it behind a VPN, at the very least turn on multi-factor for it, change the listening port. Um, but chances are you have ways to to properly secure it or just shut it down if it's not being used. Quickly add to that. I mean, we're at this point, um, we're about you know a year and a half into the pandemic. You know, there are a lot of folks that had to quickly figure out, you know, how do we work remotely? You know, places that were uh, in office, you know, operations primarily. So, you know, there was a lot of kind of scrambling to get any solution in place that worked. You know, more so than than you know really planning for information security and that that moment when you know folks just had to get back to work. Um, unfortunately, even though, you know, that it's been a year and a half since that started, we st still see, you know, so many that, you know, were set up without information security in mind. And it, it's been, uh, it's, it's really made the hacker's job a whole lot easier. Now we see, you know, ransomware proliferating the way that it has. It would be great if folks just kind of took those couple, you know, steps that you know are easy to do you know in which uh, they could secure you know that vulnerability 
so the, the last question I have on this one here, um, we were talking a little bit about email attachments. And so one of the interesting things about HIPAA is that it does allow individuals to communicate uh, back and forth via unencrypted email. And so one of the things that I always think of is as those attachments are coming in, like let's say PDF or a Word or even an Excel document, is there any security things that you would want to keep in mind, such as like scanning those documents and attachments beforehand? If so, why? Yeah, so this is where a secure email gateway can certainly come in handy, right? So something like a proof point or a mind cast. When the right controls are turned on within it and, and you've got a IT or IS person in your company or even, you know, a third party doing it for you, um, monitoring that, you're able to have those attachments scanned quickly or opened in a sandbox when suspicious. Um, and so can, that can go a long way. Now, again, not going to catch everything, but it does really help to have that kind of technology turned on. And, you know, really, it's a matter of your risk tolerance and just how much you crank it up kind of, right? Because you're always going to have the users complaining that certain things are not coming through. So it's a it's a delicate balancing act for how much you allow through versus how much you're going to have opened in sandbox, but certainly worth the investment to protect your company. Lauren, you were talking about earlier about like you guys you scanning on websites. So can you can you tell us a little bit more and how long does that take to do that scanning that you guys have? Uh, yeah, I, I can jump in and, and take that one. Our, our scanning technology, uh, in, in general, it's going to take a matter of of uh, a few minutes. Um, most will run within within a few minutes. Some of the more complex networks can take a bit longer than that. But essentially, it's it's. Uh, it runs very quickly the way that we've we've built it, and therefore, you know, we can do it often, and uh, we can use it as a as a tool in our underwriting process as well. When you guys run those scans, is it like your website goes down, or they can look into your website while you guys are running the scan, or how that works? Sure. Yeah, I know it's it's not disruptive. The the scan is is not disruptive. It's not like um like there's there's a large uh you know load on on the web servers you know like when somebody launches a like a distributed denial service attack or something. This is a this is a very light you know pinging of servers that uh, will return information that you know that we can use in our analysis um, you know to send out vulnerability alerts. Yeah, okay. it's um you know it's quite likely that the domains the websites that um, you know, all TMLT policyholders are using and all companies are using are getting scanned regularly by various vendors. Um, it's not slowing down your website activity at all. Um, again, cause it's non-invasive. So we're kind of, I liken this to a house, right? We're walking down the street, looking at houses, looking at open windows and open doors. We're not trying to walk through them though. So I have another question. So do you think that hackers do kind of like the same thing they scan websites just to get to gain access? Because you know, when hackers are thinking to get into somebody else's website or computer, they're just trying to gather information, trying to take pieces, and you know, at the end of the day, they're gonna try to solve a puzzle. Do you do you guys think that hackers can do the same thing like you guys are doing, like scanning, or 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 what is the difference between that? One hundred percent. Except they have a lot less ethics than we do. <laughs> okay. So 
they're walking down the street looking for open doors and windows and then jumping on through them. Yeah, they're they're doing this, right? Because it's good bang for their buck. They can find who seems to be more vulnerable, who's running outdated software, who has known vulnerabilities to them. And they can use their time wisely and target those organizations. So they don't necessarily care how big or small your organization is. If you have an open door, why wouldn't they walk through and see what they're going to get, right? So they're absolutely using scans as well. Um, Obviously not ours, but there are open source materials out there that they can leverage to do this kind of scanning. Um, And that's why we find it such a valuable tool for our policyholders, because if we can see it, so can they. And it means that quick action is needed. But, you know, I think What you'll also see for threat actors, and not to go too far down the rabbit hole, but particularly for ransomware, there's a whole supply chain related to ransomware attacks. And what you'll see are the the threat actors that ultimately launch the ransomware attacks and actually launch the malware that's going to encrypt systems may not have been the ones that actually broke into the system in the first place. And so there are threat actors that just specialize in breaking into companies from a couple of known vulnerabilities, be it RDP, be it some VPN vulnerabilities, they sit there all day long and break into companies, gain access and aggregate that and sell it in bulk to other threat actors in the chain. So um, you'll find this hyper specialization of threat actors who have their favorite modes of compromising companies. I think, uh, you know, a lot of the the headline grabbing uh, attacks are, you know, oftentimes they are a targeted attack on on one company, you know, somebody look at like Colonial Pipeline, that's, you know, one, one of the big ones where they were specifically trying to get to somebody that is a critical part of the, you know, the supply chain and, and would have a need to, you know, to quickly, you know, essentially pay a ransom to get a- access to their systems back. But oftentimes it's just a crime of opportunity. It's really that analogy of walking down the street and seeing open doors and windows. You know, so I think a lot of people have the kind of misconception that I'm just a small, you know, operation, Joel's pizza parlor on the corner. I don't have anything to worry about really. But in reality, somebody that you know has these tools and has the capability to quickly and easily launch an attack, even if they, they're not getting a huge sum like they might ask from like a colonial pipeline, it's still well worth their time to do so. And I have another question. So what do you guys think is the best benefit of scanning uh, these websites? But I'm talking about from the ethical standpoint. All the time, there are new vulnerabilities that are coming out. You know, every, what is it, second Tuesday, I think, uh, of the month, Microsoft does the you know patch Tuesday. There are, you know, constantly evolving, you know, new vulnerabilities. And so with technology like this, even if, if you think that you've patched against them, um, th- this is a good way to make sure that's in place. I've had clients that have specifically run patching that was recommended by by Microsoft or some others and thought that they were completely uh, patched against a vulnerability. But when we ran the scan, we found that they weren't. And um, in one case, it was just the patch didn't run. It didn't take. So I think being able to, you know, to check your systems regularly to see, are there new vulnerabilities out there? Did we miss anything? Do we, you know, did we try to do this, but maybe didn't work. Um, I think that's that's really a great benefit of the scan. Does it scan the actual website directly? Yeah, so that's where we start. Um, so for Corvus, when we're doing a quote for cyber insurance, 
the broker is giving us the main website for the company or the most relevant website, at least for the company. We're not just scanning that one website. What our scan is doing in the background is um, trying to determine what other domains might be connected to that main domain. So it's doing a bit of a outward search. And then it's going to dive deeper on each of those to see what sort of IT assets we can see and what vulnerabilities we can see. Typically, it is finding more than just the main website. Now, that said, it's not perfect. And depending on how companies have structured their domains, you know, there might be a more relevant domain that they are intentionally not connecting to their marketing website, which good on them, right? <laughs> and we might, we may or may not pick that up. So What's great about what we do is we tend to lean into that and we have calls with policyholders if they reach out and say, hey, within our scan report, we're not sure you're picking up this other domain that's actually really relevant to our, us and we want to know that that's secure. And we say, okay, great. We look at the underlying data for that particular scan and say, nope, you're right. We did not catch that one. Um, let's run our scan against that one and give you the report. That kind of interactivity with policyholders can be really great because we learn, they learn. And so for those that are really leaning into it, we're happy to provide that additional data. So one of the really interesting things that that I've actually ran into personally uh, is I've, I've actually helped build one website before. But one of the interesting things is as we were building the website, uh, we actually had a malicious actor come in and take over that website. Mm -hmm. um, so one of the interesting things is, is if you are controlling your own web design, uh, just from, from your side, uh, one of the big things that they told us to do is to add in um, MFA, which for any listener out there who hasn't heard that term before, it stands for multi-factor authentication. So it's a um, it's a way of confirming like a pin or something like that through a secondary like software program or email uh, so that they can confirm your identity. I want to add something here, Anthony. Uh, I think it's important to uh, for your cell phone or your apps like emails or apps that you might be getting to your cell phone. I think it's great to use a multi-factor authenticator. There are a bunch of them. I think Google has one. I use that one. Uh, I think it's a great idea to have the application. Mm -hmm. I would MFA my house if I could. <laughs> Let me tell you, MFA all day everywhere you can put it. Um, we're getting ahead of ourselves because I know we want to talk a little bit about common security controls, but can't say enough. If you can put MFA on it, you should be. Yeah, yeah, agreed. So do you guys have any other uh, kind of like tips and tricks maybe for a practice to lock down their website if they're managing it? I think yes. the key is definitely, um, you know, understanding who has access to their website, right? Um, and so if that company has direct access into their website, like you said, um, locking down the credentials. So there's also MFA to get into it. But, you know, more often than not, companies are also using web developers. So understanding what the security practices of the web developer are is also very helpful. Um, and I don't think you need to be super technical in order to ask questions and try and determine their level of sophistication. It's really just about asking what sort of controls are in place. See how they respond. Are they kind of giving you a super surface answer um, or very short or quick or starting to sweat when they're when they're responding to you? Uh, maybe you haven't found the best web developer for your company. 
also just ask, are you protecting your credentials, uh, you know, into our website with multi-factor authentication and see what they say. If they say, huh, that's also a red flag. So you don't have to be super technical to start to suss out their level of sophistication there. And then what we see is, you know, when we're scanning, we're looking to see what sort of protections are on a, a given website. A lot of times we see there's missing HTTP security headers, um, which indicates to us the web developer didn't put those headers into the code of the website. Super easy to do, helps prevent domain hijacking and other things. So, you know, I, again, if they're leveraging scans, whether from us or from other sources, that can help kind of highlight some not so best practices within the setup of the website. And just add to that, beyond even the uh, web hosting company, really anybody that that you're giving um, access to your network, regardless of their function, that's something that you need to look closely at their security policies. Also consider what type of access are, are, are you giving them? Do they just need it occasionally? Can you, you know, turn that off and turn it on when it's needed? Does it need to be a persistent connection? One of the things that, you know, we've seen with attacks you know, over the past year or so, I guess the, the most noteworthy one being the Kaseya breach was, was you have bad actors that are specifically looking for these kind of points of aggregation, right? So if I can get to this you know, web hosting company and they have persistent access to 50 you know, clients, then I can get to those 50 clients. So, you know, so those are folks that we see truly being targeted. And, you know, if you're one of those clients, you need to you know, make sure that they're using at least the, you know, at a minimum, the controls that, you know, that you're using yourself. In part two of our discussion, we'll look at reactive cyber risk management and take an even deeper dive into parts of cybersecurity our guest speakers find the most intriguing. If you are a TMLT policyholder and need to confirm or update your website information so that Corvus can conduct a security scan of your website, please contact our customer service department at 1-800-580-8658. Thank you to our guests, Lauren Winchester and Joel Furman of Corvus Insurance. And thank you for listening to Trends MD.